Welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello, and welcome to Refocus. Our guest today is Fred Penner. At an early childhood education conference, acclaimed family entertainer, singer-songwriter, composer, actor, writer, author, TV host, and keynote speaker, Fred Penner delivered a simple yet powerful message. Never underestimate your ability to make a difference in the life of a child. With more than 40 years of commitment to the Canadian music industry, Fred has a fan base that spans multiple generations. He is a four-time Juno Award recipient and starred in 13 seasons, nearly 1,000 episodes of the hit CBC TV series, Fred Penner's Place. Over these decades, Fred has toured extensively across North America and created 13 albums of music for his legions of fans, and his visibility has allowed him the privilege and joy of using his voice as a spokesperson for World Vision, UNICEF, UNESCO, the Canadian Down Syndrome Society, and countless other organizations working with children on our planet. Fred has garnered critical acclaim and a host of awards, including the Order of Canada, Order of Manitoba, and induction into the Western Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Welcome, Fred. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Who is that guy you were talking about? Hello, Rosalind. <laughs> it's you, Fred. Oh, it's my. so wonderful to get a chance to chat with you. Yeah, really. Yeah, we just touched on some connection when you played on my last album, and I was so delighted that you were able to do that. But yeah, often we don't just get a time to sit down and talk. And knowing your family and your mom, I'm, I'm delighted to speak with you. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Fred. I wanted to start with sharing a special moment with you where... I just kind of clued into a little bit more into who you were. And it was when we were working on the album, Hear the Music, which you recorded with the wonderful Ken Whiteley. And mm -hmm. I feel like I had a, a musician's day in Toronto. I was like a frazzled, <laughs> I mean, from one thing or another and showed up in the studio, got some tea and took a few breaths and sat down. And before we recorded um, the song Children's Garden, I remember you saying to me, like, I just want to describe to you what the song is about. And you went into maybe like a five-minute description of this beautiful <laughs> garden in Assiniboine Park. And then there's a slide. And when you come down the slide, you see a frog. And then this, <laughs> and it was so, so mm. joyous and so detailed. And it was a revelation to me to see that you really brought true joy and intention into your creativity and into your music. And this is a 2017 mm. album. After a 40-year career, how do you keep being inspired and bringing joy in, into your music? How, indeed. <laughs> it's getting harder now. I mean, as I am in officially septuagenarian world, finding the inspiration to sit down, what do I want to write about? What do I want to create? Is there anything left to do? I mean, after 13 albums and a lot of music, I'm not feeling as inspired as I, as I used to be mm -hmm. because so much of what I've done was, was writing to task. And when I did Fred Penner's Place, I told the writers for the series, as you're putting the, a script together and you come to a point where there's no song that really fits from the list of tunes that I have, just write down Penner Original and uh, and send that to me for two minutes. And so I would have a clear path that I could follow. I need that in a way. I need to have someone say, write me a song about this or that, and then I can focus in. If I just have to sit down and try and figure it out myself, it's a little more challenging. But when I do sit down and write, 
especially if it's for family, for children, because I do write songs for a more adult audience occasionally. Mm -hmm. But if I'm writing something for family, I go back to my childhood. I try and do the kind of thing that I did with Children's Garden in describing that to you, which I would hope give you some picture of, because you've been there, Mm -hmm. you know what a Cinnaboyne Park is like. And if you feel that inside, then it'll be expressed through your music. So I do that to myself. I think, okay, if I'm writing about this, then when I was eight years old, what would my perspective be on that? Mm. You know, how would I feel if I was in that environment? Where would my spirit carry me? And what kind of music, what kind of flow would come out of that? So I try to get in the headspace as much as possible of where I want this to carry me. And then the music often just flows from that. I tend to write lyric before I write melody for the most part. And once the lyric is there, then I can just massage it into some framework that works for me and then edit and edit (laughs) until it's finally done. The creative process is so very exciting to me, and I'm so honored that I've been able to do this as my life career for 50 years. It sounds like it's it's really empathetic, the way that you write. Yeah, well, I hope. And you never know when you write a song how an audience is going to respond to it. So all I can do, all any of us can do when we're making a song is to write it from as strong, as clear, as honest a place in our being. And then once it's out, it's not your business anymore. It's out of your control. You have to just trust that what you did was what you wanted it to be. And then if people react, then all the more power to it. But you can't necessarily define that it's going to work the way you want it to. Do you say 50-year career now? Is it 50 years? Well, I'm 76 Mm -hmm. now, and I started in 1972 with Cornstalk, with a band with Al Simmons and Bob King and Mike Clem, my my first major comedy show band. That was 50 years ago. The Cat came back, came out in 79, and then I worked with Rafi's company for five years, and then the TV came along. And then once I did that first record, and the timing of it was so perfect because that's when the post-war boomers were having kids and it it just took off from there. But I sort of put 72 as my start year. Amazing. I was really interested by like all the different types of creative work that you've done. It's not just recording albums and performing that you also did the TV work and and writing work and voice work, theater and and all sorts of... Lots of of theater. Yeah, Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. And is that inspiring to you? Was it out of necessity? Was it a choice to to kind of diversify what you were doing? Certainly a, a choice. It was inspired in a way from awareness of mortality. You may have read that business. I had a sister who was born with Down syndrome and she died in the early 70s, 71. Mm. And my father was uh, was very ill from cancer and alcoholism. And he died less than a year after Susie. And so I had these two pretty, well, ultimate hits in my awareness of mortality and, my, and the two people that I loved dearly. And I had just graduated from the University of Winnipeg with a BA in economics to live my father's dream because he had always wanted to go to university but couldn't. So so that was a huge turning point for me. I realized I did not want to be an economist, but I had no other, in my mind, marketable skill. I loved to play guitar. I loved to make music. I loved to perform. I loved choirs. And I said, well, let's see if any of that will open a door for me. So I started auditioning for lounges and bars. <laughs> my, my first paid gig 
was the Can Can Lounge at the Balmore Hotel on the, for seventy five bucks, twenty five dollars a night. Anyway, so it it began. I thought, well, this people are going to pay me to get up on a stage to do something. And then I thought, well, keep your channels open. And then I was in a in a whack of plays in the seventies as Cornstalk was touring the country. And I did some work at Manitoba Theatre Centre and then Rainbow Stage. And I did make that decision essentially to whatever came my way, I would try. I was open to exploring whatever direction this could go because I didn't know where it was, how it was going to unfold. I thought I'd be an actor. I thought I'd just be a folk singer. But then it just kept picking me up and dragging me here and plopping me down. And I would look at it and say, oh, let's try that. Let's try that. Let's try that. And, and it, all, it all seemed to turn out pretty well. What are some lessons then that you've picked up in these years in your career? Or are there pieces of advice that you would <clears throat> give to folks, that artists, mm. people, creative people that help you kind of keep going? I'll have young people approach me and ask what kind of exactly this question, what kind of advice do you have? I really want to become a children's entertainer. I want to do this. And the first thing I, I say is, why? What is your motivation? Why do you want to entertain kids? Well, because there's so much fun and because I can jump up on that. I can, you know, I can make sound, I can make color. And often they will go to a very superficial direction in what their ability might be. And I say, what is your philosophy? Working with children is not just a matter of getting up on stage and making a funny face and singing a, a silly song. That's one small percentage of what the big picture is. I never underestimate your ability to make a difference in the life of a child. I learned that from Susie, from my sister. I learned that from working with special needs children along the way and seeing how music can make a difference if you approach it from that angle. It's not a throwaway. So why do you want to do it? That's the biggest thing. If you're expecting to make a lot of money, forget it. The chances of that happening are small. I got very lucky that I was able to do as many things as I could in my life, just the timing was right. And so often, that's part of the deal. The timing has to be right. I mean, asking me to give advice is tricky for me mm -hmm. because of where I was and how things evolved for me. It is all based on your personal truth, on the philosophy, on honesty, on sharing something that is of true value in your mind. What would you like someone hopefully, not necessarily, but hopefully to take away from anything that you present? Is it a chord progression that brings out an emotion? Is it a certain lyric that really does capture what you're looking to present? It's all about that. It all comes down to something really personal, very deep, and good luck, and good <laughs> luck. That's beautiful, Fred. I think that is a beautiful piece of advice because you have had this mm. such a beautiful message through your music and really mm. true and honest and the documentary that was made mm. about you is called take good care of each other what a beautiful phrase to have sum up someone's career that's a pretty pretty amazing mm. thing how did you feel seeing that piece of work and i think there's two right there's or a shorter version and a longer yeah, Aaron Floresco, a Winnipeg videographer, he followed me for many gigs over a seven, eight year period. And we put together a short piece, about half an hour. And he felt that there was enough material with some other interviews, etc., to go into a full length doc. It's always weird looking at myself because I feel 
removed from it, you know, and as you gave the introduction at the beginning, oh, is that me? Is that, I don't feel that I'm a very egotistical person. I, I try to be as, as open and caring and loving as I possibly can be without being that egotistical side. I mean, I do have an ego and that has been ruffled along the way, but I, I enjoyed the video. I enjoyed the videography. I like seeing old friends and people who were open to talking about how they felt about my work and who I am and what I do. But it's just, it doesn't mean anything. Does it really ultimately mean anything? Well, I'm sure it means a lot to a lot of people that are fans of your work and maybe new fans on the way. But it's really interesting. I remember seeing you perform. We hadn't seen each other in, in a little while. And I saw you play at Hillside Festival. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Not in the children's tent, on the big stage there. And yeah. there were thousands of people, <laughs> adults, who were sitting crisscross applesauce and just having the actual time of their lives shouting and, and hollering and singing along. And there was such an immense joy mm. to get to listen to your music. And like it was an interesting phenomenon to witness and say, like, oh, this is like when you make that connection. To music so young it's yeah. really neat that you keep it in there and yeah. so to see like see these adults have exactly as much joy as the kids get <laughs> the same amount if not more because this is something that they've carried with them you know your songs and your music they've carried with them for now 40 years yeah getting into that part of the process because this whole thing is a process that's carried me along carried us along for this time going into universities after Fred Penner's Place was pulled off the air in the late 90s and there were no reruns happening. And I thought, well, I, that was a good run, 13 years, thousand shows almost. But what am I going to do now? A few gigs still happening. I'll play festivals along the way. But it, it felt like things were going to slow down at that point. And then Mr. Dressup and I had a connection and I saw that he was doing lunchtime at universities, going in and yeah. just talking about his career and the rest of it. And I thought, oh, of course, that's where that generation has gone now. Those kids who connected over all that time from the early mid 80s are now going to university. So I, I talked to my agents at Pekin. I said, when you're doing the university conference, offer my name as a possibility, not for a lunch hour, but for the bar, for mm -hmm. the nighttime gigs. And at first they said, really? Is that, are you sure about that? I said, yeah, absolutely. And so they, uh, they went to the conference and had my name up. And all of a sudden it was, oh, could this work? The first one of those I did was at UBC at the Pit Pub. For about 300, this bar was jammed. There was not standing room. And I, was, I did it solo. And I got up and did essentially the majority of the material that I would normally do. Plus, I supplemented with some Joni Mitchell and Gordon Lightfoot and Cat Stevens, stuff that I had done in my earlier days. And the audience instantly became five years old. All of them, professors as well. It was the most incredible feeling to know that, as you're saying, that that connection that they had as children carried through and really had a solid point. I think part of it too, and then this is the, in my humorous perspective, perhaps, is personality is formed in the first five, six years. Of, that's when you're, when really all the pieces of your awareness come together. And so if I was with 
the kids for that critical time, those five years, then in some way I've affected their DNA. So when I come in person, it doesn't just hit their emotions and on the surface, it does go into a very core of their being. And when that happens, I just, I'm in absolute heaven. I'm delighted to know that's happening. Again, I couldn't expect that necessarily, Mm -hmm. but when it happens, it just takes me over the moon. Your fans have been known to be called Fred Heads. So it's not just a clever name. Like you're in their heads. <laughs> yeah. Right in there. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. The Los Angeles parent called you the Canadian Minister of Positivity. And the focus of your 2017 album, Hear the Music, was a lot about positive messaging, as much of your music is. But since that was released in 2017, I feel like things have become a bit more trying. We went through some pretty tough times for kind of like collectively around the globe as humanity and artists had lost their livelihood. And how did you get through those times? And do you have a little bit of that positivity to share for folks who might be still recovering through that. Yeah, if we will ever recover from that, it was pretty intense. It is pretty intense. You've got to learn to trust yourself. You've got to learn to trust that you can survive because this career is nothing if you don't believe in who you are and what you're doing. I was in the midst of or towards the end of my 40th anniversary Cat Came Back tour. And we'd done Eastern dates and we got as far as the last date was Calgary. And then we headed up to to Edmonton. And I was so excited about the Edmonton gig because I've played there a lot. We had a beautiful 1,500 seats sold at the Windspear Theater, Mm -hmm. which is one of the most beautiful theaters in the country. And this show had a full video component. So, so the video was set up, the monitors were there, the sound was there, everything was as perfect as it could possibly have been, except there was not going to be an audience. About two hours or so before showtime, the Alberta Health Authority came in and said, we've got to shut it down. I was with Paul O'Neill and a road manager, a cousin of mine, David Hogue. We drove back to Calgary, where our initial flight was from. We scrambled, got new flights. I now had a home here on the island. So I flew back here and they went back to Winnipeg. And suddenly two years later, we're still trying to figure out what's going on. For me, it was it was shock. Mm-hmm. But because I've trusted myself, I thought, well, here we are. There's a huge global transition that's happening. How do I approach it? Well, continue to practice. I play guitar almost every day. I'm working on the material. I may at some point have another album in me, who knows. But the positive thing for me was uh, Ray Ellen is my wife. We spent a lot of time getting to to really know each other. Mm. And I had never in my life with any relationship that I'd had been able to spend that time with another human being. And that can be ultimately one of the most challenging things you will ever learn to do. So I'm hoping that people did spend time to, to get to know their spouse, their partners, and themselves a little bit better along the way. Since my divorce, I've been into therapy. So I do therapy every couple of weeks. I'll talk to my therapist about how I'm feeling, things I'm thinking. And that's a really positive thing to do. If you're going through a tough time, don't just try and rationalize it out yourself, but get help. And I think now, perhaps more than ever, we do need someone in this world who can look at our situation and say, yeah, there, there is a way to approach this that is positive and that can carry you through. 
Oh, that's inspiring to hear that journey, to hear that you were open to getting help and seeking that and to entering into the process of therapy and kept it up and saw the value in in continuing to ask for help, which I think can be hard for some people. Yeah. And that very much came from my wife as well. I've been divorced about 11, 12 years now. And Ray and I have been married for five years and a bit. And therapy was a really important part of her life trip. We both come from our families of origin. Both our fathers were alcoholic. So we had that to share in an odd sort of way. And the therapeutic thing is it just gives you a little different perspective. But one of the lessons that I learned from that very early in in the therapeutic process, which they recommend for if you're going through a divorce or separation, talk to somebody. It's important. One of the things was you did the best you could with what you had so that you don't feel guilty and resentful of having lost a relationship. And the other one is learning the difference between codependence and interdependence, where codependent, the way it was described is, if your partner goes under I- into the rabbit hole, freaks out about something, has, has gone wherever they go, the codependent would go in there too and say, I can save you, I can help you, I can fix it, I'm going to do this, you know, that diving in, mm-hmm. where you're both wallowing in that mire. The interdependent is, oh, I see you've gone into the rabbit hole. If there's anything I can do, let me know. I'll be here when you come out, you know, which is two totally different approaches. And it's so, so very important. But the therapy has been really important and valuable to me. Speaking of relationships, you've carried with you too, like a lot of professional and like friendship relationships throughout your career as well. And we mentioned Ken Whiteley, there's your bandmates that you've played with for a long time. And there's folks like Al Simmons who are still performing out there and all sorts of folks that I'm sure you've been able to keep in touch with to varying degrees. (laughs) What does that mean to, to be able to keep some of those relationships going? And how do you do that? You have to make a commitment to do that. I'll call Al every every so often. We'll chat about life and things. I called Gordy Osland, who was my drummer for a long time. Uh, any of these friends I did have a deep connection with, I'm excited about reconnecting or having a conversation with them and seeing where they are, how they're approaching life. As I move into I'm 76, can't believe it, I look at the perspectives that I have in life and discussing that with other friends who are going through the change. And it's it's as much a change for men as it is for women, dare I say that. But there is a male menopause and learning to understand what that is and becoming a better person through that understanding. I've always just worked really hard at being a good human first of all, and a good man. I consider myself a gentle man. And I want that, if anything comes through in my approach to people, is that. I want to be supportive of others. We're all in this together. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. So the more I can do to maintain those connections along the way, there's value to it. It's important for my spirit, for their spirit. I think it's a testament to living up to that, that you still have those people in your life. That's incredible. What I find interesting now, just sort of springing off that little Mm -hmm. bit, is the people who grew up with me, who are now moving into their own world, is I'm flying as high as I can imagine watching what's happening with them. I did a show 
called the Route 90 Sessions uh, out of Midcan Studios on Route 90. Tanner Gruinski, uh, the son of a, of a woman who helped me with some of my early albums and bringing kids to sing on the albums, Chris Gruinski. But her son is a video producer and he had this idea of doing some interviews with Winnipeg performers. So I spoke with Brothers Landreth, with Begonia, with Al Simmons, with J.P. Ho, William Prince, and with Sierra Noble. Those six incredible talents. And we had very intense, open conversations. And this was like over a year ago now. And watching where they have gone, Begonia is just burning this trail that's freaking me out just a little bit because she knows really where she's going. And for the Landreth brothers to, to get the Juno just a couple of days ago, oh, golly, I'm flying. And where they're all going just thrills me to no end. So those kind of connections, not just with my age-wise contemporaries, but with the kids who grew up with me who are moved into that, those are my contemporaries as well. And keeping contact with them and sending a little message to William Prince saying, congratulations on opening for Willie Nelson for this farm aid thing that he's doing or performing on the Grand Ole Opry. I feel like, oh, I, I now have one degree of separation from the Grand Ole Opry, and that's William Prince. So it's all of that just is uh, so very exciting to see where how that's evolving. And you had such an incredible crew of folks that performed with you on Hear the Music, just a crackerjack lineup yeah. of you know artists from Good Lovelies and Alex Cuba and all. That was really the excitement of that album, mm -hmm. was to have those young performers who were m more than delighted to be on my album, you included. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. But that idea had it sort of come up a few years before. I'd started working on some stuff with Hoxley Workman, and I didn't really have the material to go farther with, with that project. But then uh, with Jeff Kulovic and the folks at Linus Entertainment, we put it together. And with Ken Whiteley, dear Ken, who's produced many of my albums along the way, we started putting it together and seeing how the songs would fit with some of these players. Like, you know, Ron Sexsmith sang on two of the songs. And that was the right kind of connection. There were another dozen artists who would have loved to have been part of it, but we didn't have the material and the time. So I'm thinking that this next album, if I can do it before I'm 80, would be maybe a similar thing, have some beautiful musical connections with some of those folks. But, but those links are invaluable to me. And I'm very proud that people still feel that they, they want to connect with me. So what is next? You're talking about a possible future album, which we're all <laughs> eagerly anticipating. Are you performing live? Have you gone back to playing live? Uh, bits and pieces, yeah. Mm. I've done a few things on the island. I played Canada Day last year in Courtney in October, playing in Sydney, close to Victoria. I'm off to Edmonton next week, playing in Spruce Grove, doing the Cat Came Back show there. Mm playing in Saskatoon at Jazz Fest in July, back to Winnipeg for Kids Fest. So there's every month between now and, and the end of the year, there's one or two gigs. I'll be doing the Burton Cummings with my Christmas show this year. Beautiful. The middle of December. It's pulled back substantially from the way it was even five years ago. But I'm not stopping I, until I have to for whatever reason. You know, I'm, I'm getting the arthritis thing happening in, in my hands. It's it's manageable. I keep the exercise going there. Mm -hmm. I'm still able to play on a daily basis. So so I will do what I can for as long as I can. That's all. It's 
inspiring to hear that you're still practice and that you keep up like a daily practice of there's another another message to people who are into this put that into your daily regimen and whatever length it is everybody's got their little progressions their little exercises that they do a certain song that it's the go-to go there and keep thinking about a different way to approach it listen to other musicians and try and figure out what they're doing, perhaps, that might expand your palette. So I'm, I, I've been getting into more and more jazz chords along the way and trying to implement that into my work. I like the complexity of chords, mm. and you can't copyright a chord progression. You can copyright melody, you can copyright lyrics, but chord progression's not. So, uh, so, don't, so, so don't be afraid to use those for your own purpose. Yeah, I say thank goodness because you have some great chord <laughs> progressions in your in your arsenal there. Yeah, thank you, Fred. Where can people find you on online if they want to to follow along with your adventures? I do have a website, fredpenner.com. That's where you'd find tour information, which I'll be updating shortly. And I have some merch, some T-shirts, CDs, books that are available through there through the store. But that's the main path, and and the email world, I'm always open to direct connections. And I answer my own email. Fred, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. We just really love you. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. It's truly my pleasure. I love you and your work and where things are unfolding in your path. And that's uh, that's really exciting for me to watch where you're going. You know, having seen, seen you as a young fiddler, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But I appreciate being on this program and sharing some thoughts and feelings. I hope it made some sense along the way. And we can do this again anytime you'd like. I'm yeah, open. We would love that. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Refocus. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. This refocus session is brought to you through the generous support of the Department of Canadian Heritage. <laughs>